You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. So now here we are at the end of chapter 13 of Hebrews, and I want to share this morning just two verses. Chapter 13, verse 20 through 21. Two verses, one run-on sentence, and it's a, it's a prayer and a, a blessing over these Hebrew believers. And so if you're ever wondering how to pray, Lord, how do I pray? What should I pray? There are these beautiful prayers throughout God's word that kind of give us a roadmap of what to pray. We pray, we see it at the end of this um, book of Hebrews. You'll see it in a lot of Paul's writings at the beginning uh, of his writings. Philippians 1, 9 says, I pray that the love of God may abound in you, that knowledge of who he is would increase, that you would have discernment to know what is right. Those are all things we, we can pray. We have permission to pray over ourselves. It's a roadmap of what is, what is in the Lord's heart that we might pray and ask him for. Ephesians 1, that, that the eyes of our heart might be open to know him better. Do you want to know him better? I want to know, I want to know him better. So Lord, open my eyes so that I might know you better. On and on and on it goes. There's even prayers within the Psalms. Lord, I pray that you would take the jawbone of a donkey and kill all my enemies. And you're like, well, that's a little intense prayer. And uh, the idea there is not that we should pray for the death of our enemies, but rather it's the, the pouring out of all that is within our hearts before the Lord. Even the angry, the ugly stuff. So that Psalm 62 could come to pass in our life. Pour out your hearts to me, O you people. And trust in the Lord, for he is a refuge to us. He doesn't want just our polished, well-articulated prayers. He wants everything within us, that communion with God. And so here we have this prayer, and I'm going to try to do it justice this morning. It's just so much that's packed in just these two little verses about the nature of God his work in our lives, and his desire for us. So in verse 20 it says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, amen, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he starts out this prayer. He says, now may the God of peace. And he uses one of the many names of God. And I find it interesting that he chose God of peace in this instance. To believers who are being persecuted, who are going through difficulties and trials. He's emphasizing one of the many attributes of God's essence, that he is the God of peace. And so many of us understand God's peace as that feeling that we get when we're, we're praying for something or, or making, trying to make a decision. I'm, I'm waiting for the peace. And that is true. Or for many of us, the peace is when the chaos subsides in our life. When it feels not so crazy, it's more tranquil. Everything is, is good. And all those are true. 
But even more than that, there's a reason it's the God of peace because he is the Lord of peace. It is not just what he gives. As in John 14, he says, peace I give to you, peace I leave to you, I leave you. He also says, I will not leave you as an orphan. Listen, it speaks to not just what he gives you, but who he is. The very presence of Jesus is peace. It's him walking on the water in the midst of the storm on crazy waves. When you're in the midst of hopelessness, it's him who comes to you. It's the Lord, a God of peace, speaks to his coming presence in any situation, in any aspect of life. It also speaks to his power. Do you remember in Mark chapter 4 when the disciples are uh, afraid they're going to die? And they say, Jesus, there's a storm that has risen. Jesus, don't you care that we're, we're going to die? And Jesus is sleeping. Jesus says, oh, what happened to your faith? Do you forget who I am? He invokes his, his godly, creative, creator power in that moment to, to cease, to make the storm cease. His peace speaks to an overcoming work. Listen, we want oftentimes when we God, say, God, give me peace, it means, Lord, take me out of this situation. Lord, make the, the, the craziness stop. But there's an even greater work of peace that says in the midst of the storm, you can have peace because you are with him. He is near you. As Isaiah says that even though you walk through the fire, you won't be burned, but you'll walk through the fire. Or you'll walk through the waters, but they won't overwhelm you or overcome you. But you'll walk through the waters. It might get a little bit hairy. But Isaiah 9 says that he's the prince of peace, meaning he himself is peace. It also it speaks to his overcoming work of the enemy. Romans chapter 16, it says, the Lord of peace will trample Satan under your foot. Under our foot, our feet. The Lord of peace, wait, I thought he was the Lord of peace. Listen, just don't mistake his gentleness for weakness. He is powerful. He is a mighty warrior. And he comes to wage war on the works of the enemy. Not on people, but comes to destroy the works of the devil, the Bible says. And he incorporates us, his people, into that plan. In Romans chapter 16, he's speaking of that great day when Jesus comes back for a pure and spotless bride when the devil is chained up for a thousand years until he's thrown into the lake of fire. But we are incorporated into that battle. The Lord, the Spirit of God comes and lives in us and we walk in power, authority every day. This overcoming work to trample the devil underfoot. I think it was Bob Gladstone, Dr. Gladstone, when he was here, he said, if Christians really knew the power which they walked with, uh, the devil would be having a bad, 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 bad time. But we walk in this kind of, with our hands tied behind our backs. But he is the God of peace. Matthew 10, 34 says, I come not to bring peace, but 
a sword. And that sounds like he's contradicting himself, doesn't it? But he brings this gospel of peace and he's calling the world to decision. Jesus is calling the world to decision and he has been for 2,000 years. Who will be your master? Who will be your king? Who will you follow? Who will be the Lord of your life? And for some, that will bring turmoil because they want to sit on the throne of their own hearts. They want the kings of this world. But for, for those of us who follow Jesus, we will find a salvation of peace, a gospel of reconciliation. He is the God of peace. Then it says, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. He speaks of the precious blood of Jesus. The precious and powerful blood of Jesus. Blood is something that speaks to life, the life of something. You could have your heart pumping, your brain working, but if there's no blood in your veins, you will not live. It is the, the life that's coursing through our veins is the blood, and so the blood speaks to the life of Jesus, the pure, perfect life and blood of Jesus, overcoming every temptation, every power of darkness, the powerful blood of Jesus, and it is enough for you it's not just a saving agent, it's a, it's, a, it's a protecting agent. We plead the blood over our minds, over our hearts. The enemy hates the blood of Jesus because it speaks to defeat. The blood of Jesus speaks to the defeat of the enemy. That Jesus shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice. Just as Aaron used to go into the tent as the high priest and he would sacrifice a goat for his own sins so that he might be standing right, right standing in the presence of the Lord. And then he would sacrifice a goat for the sins of his people to satisfy the justice of God. And then he would take another goat and he'd lay his hands as to transfer the sins of the people onto that goat and then he would let the goat go outside of the camp to succumb to the elements or to predators, speaking to the, the natural path that our our sin leads us. It's again why Jesus was crucified outside the city. He was our scapegoat. Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice. He needed no sacrifice unto himself because he was perfect. He was perfect. He is perfect, completely holy. And then he shed his blood for us to satisfy the justice of God. and to cleanse us from the defilement that sin brings us. Jesus is perfect. His blood is enough. And because of his perfect sacrifice, when he stood before the, the mercy seat in heaven presenting his blood, it cleanses us of all unrighteousness of all sin, even the darkest of stains. Listen, you think about um, having white carpet and spilling like red Kool-Aid or something on it. You could sit and you scrub, you just scrub it. 
he tried all the infomercial cleaning products there are, OxyClean, whatever, and you might get it out, but odds are there's still, you're still gonna be able to see it. Or you might even know, knowing, nobody else might see it, but you might know that there's a stain there. Listen, the blood of Jesus cleanses you of all unrighteousness, every sin, like there was no sin. The remnants of it, there's not even little particles of it. You are cleansed, you are clean, you are blameless, justified before the Lord because of the blood of Jesus, which ushers us into this new and better covenant, Jeremiah 31 says, that no longer the, 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 the law of God is written on tablets of stone, but now it is written on our hearts. We have Holy Spirit living in us, transforming us from the inside out. This is the blood of Jesus, the power of the blood of Jesus. And then he was raised from the dead, our, our King, King Jesus. And so every time you love beyond yourself, you, you prophesy, you, you, you declare the risen Christ. Every time you pray for healing and someone gets healed, you declare the risen Christ. Every time you, you, you show kindness and encouragement to someone that doesn't deserve it, listen, you are declaring the risen Christ. Every time you pray in your prayer language, you are declaring the risen Christ. We do not serve a dead God, but one who is alive, who's given us the spirit of God to walk in victory and power every single day. And now we are ushered into this covenant and he becomes our bridegroom. He becomes like our husband who will stay true to his covenant. He is a God of covenant, the Bible says. He will not break his promise to never leave us or forsake us, to give us everything we need for life and, right and godliness, to equip us for every good work, but he won't hold us a hostage either. We get to choose. He will never rob us of choice. We get to choose. But he is a God of covenant and he will not break that covenant. We connect ourselves, attach ourselves to all sorts of things, but there is nothing better than the promise of the Lord. I will give you everything you need. I will be your everything. I am yours and you are mine. I am giving you my spirit. I'm not leaving you as an orphan, but I'm coming to you. I've come to you. I've washed away every sin. I've given you a position to fight from a place of victory, not for it. I have called you my son. I have called you my daughter. And then he makes a little pit stop here and he says, oh, that great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. Again, this speaks to his character, his attributes. You've heard me say it before, but the moniker sheep is not an incredibly flattering one. Sheep are not particularly intelligent. They really have little ways in which they can protect themselves. They have good eyesight, good hearing, so they can see and hear danger there's not a lot they can do about it. So what they need to do is stay close to the shepherd. 
Apart from the Lord, there's little to nothing we can do against the plans and schemes of the enemy. But that's why we stay close to the shepherd, the chief shepherd. And he's not like a shepherd of the world where the sheep are like a commodity or they're strictly for utility, but he loves his sheep. The Bible says he laid down his life for the sheep. When Jesus looked over the city, he began to weep and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, how I long to gather them like a, like a mother hen gathers her chicks. This is a shepherd who loves us, who leaves the 99 to come and pursue us, to come and find us, to bring us home. So we stay close to the shepherd. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. So for him to be our shepherd, he must first be our Lord. And then when he becomes our Lord and master, meaning he is the one who has all authority in our life, he is the one who makes the decisions and calls the shots, who we submit ourselves to, then he becomes also our shepherd. We know him as shepherd. It's not a theory, we know him as shepherd. That we walk with him. And what does it say? Everybody knows it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Have you ever walked in that place that it's describing? Through the valley of the shadow of death. That Because we've heard that verse so many times, it's really become uh, less impactful to us. The valley of the shadow of death, that place where you're on the brink of hopelessness, where you feel so discouraged, like discouragement is overwhelming you, or you feel so weary that you, you feel like, I have nothing else to give. Or the enemy feels like it's looming, it's about to overcome me at any point. I'm standing in the shadow of the enemy. But when you stay with the shepherd, you stay close to him, you fear no evil thing. For he is with you. As Psalm 91 says, all these makes all these promises, but they're only for those who dwell in the shadow of the Most High. So we position ourselves in that place of dwelling, which means we live in that place. We don't just come when we need a rescuing, but we dwell in that place of the shadow of the Most High. So even though we feel hopeless at times, we know that we live within the arms of the living hope, Jesus. We feel discouraged and almost overwhelmed. We know that we live with this one whose blood was poured out and his blood speaks a better word, as scripture says, over our life. And you bring, it brings courage into you. It breathes courage into your life. Do you know courage and persistence are things that we will only experience on this side of eternity? Because in heaven there will be no fear. So there's no overcoming work of fear in heaven because we'll be with the one who is perfect love and perfect love casts out all fear. There's no fear there, right? There's no deception. There's no impurity there. So there's something we experience on this side of 
worshiping King Jesus, drawing near to him when everything in your life is screaming at you to do the opposite. To know him, to really know him deep within you as your great shepherd, the chief shepherd, King Jesus. And those are the precious gifts that God gives us. Those moments where we walk with him, where we know his truth, not just in here, but we know it through experience. I know my God is faithful because I've walked through the fire with him. I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death and I wasn't overwhelmed. I I didn't die. Verse 21. So that he may equip you with every good thing for doing his will. So he prayed this prayer about who God is, which is always a great place to pray, start prayer, who he is, what he's done. And now he's talking about what he wants to do because of who he is and what he's done. He wants to equip you. He wants to equip me for every good thing for doing his will. Every good thing. I think we think sometimes when we think of that, every good thing, we think of only the pleasant feeling things. Most of the things that matter or are worth anything in our lives came with a price, didn't they? And so sometimes in this instance, he says everything good, it doesn't mean that it's always going to feel good but it's going to be for your good. It's like, man, if my kids, if, if, uh, if I let them, they would eat pancakes for every meal of the day, right? And if I was concerned about just being their buddy and letting them, I don't ever want them to feel anything unpleasant. I'd say, yeah, go for it. You eat, Eat those pancakes. You want more? Have as much juice as you want. Orange pop, bro, you have as much orange pop as you want. But what is my job as a parent? Oh, I got to give them some broccoli sometimes. We say it a lot. My son goes, I don't like this. And I go, I'm sorry you don't like this. It would be a lot easier if you did. But you're going to eat it. So you don't have to like it. You just have to eat it. This is how the Lord is with us. That's sometimes how I feel as a pastor. I wish I could just communicate pleasant things to you, but sometimes there are things that are unpleasant that need to be communicated that are for our good. I'm grateful for people in my life who have spoke that things that do not feel good, but that are for my good, so that I might grow up in the things of the Lord, that I might walk in greater maturity in the things of the Lord. It doesn't mean it's always going to feel good, but he wants to equip us for doing his will. To raise you up. We're not raising sons and daughters. We're raising mothers and fathers with kids. We're raising adults, even though they're tiny. One day they'll be big, right? We want them well equipped for this world, to face this world. We want them to walk in the power and authority, to understand uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in them and on them. My daughter, we don't use the, the term shut up in our house um, for obvious reasons. And, uh, 
the other day, my, wife, my, my daughter asked me, she goes, Dad, is it okay if I tell the devil to shut up? And I go, it is absolutely okay to tell the devil to shut up. And so the devil's been told to shut up a lot for multiple reasons, I'm sure. I'm, I'm raising my, my, my children to not need me every step of the way for the rest of their life. I'm imparting things that the Lord has shown me into them so that one day they'll get into a situation and they'll, they'll think, oh, I, this is what dad was talking about. I know what to do here. We've talked about this. But they've got to face it on their own. A year or so ago, maybe more, the Lord spoke to me in a time of prayer. He said, the best days are, or the best is yet to come. And I've grown to just get tired of that phrase because I think a lot of times in the church it just means the good times are coming. Let the good times roll. Easy times are, are ahead. And there's nothing in the scripture that promises us easy times that we'll be exempt from tragedy or difficulty. And I said, Lord, why would you remind me of, of that? Like, why would you bring that to my mind? And then the Lord said, the best way is not the easy way. And there, there are things, has the Lord ever spoken something to you or you read something in the scripture, you're like, golly, Lord, that stings. That doesn't feel good. But it's for my good. We want him to work all things together for the good of those who love him. But that doesn't mean that we're always hopping and skipping with a lollipop through the, the halls of church. It means even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear. He wants to equip you for everything good, for his will. Not mine, right? His will. And may he work what is pleasing to him. Pleasing to myself? No, pleasing to him. I want my life to be pleasing to him. When we think about honoring people in our lives, it begins in your heart how you honor people, how you, the, di the inner dialogue that you have about people within your own heart, honor starts there. Love starts there. God, remove the impurities from my heart or remove the, the critical nature and judgmental nature of my heart I have at times. Let me see people the way that you see them, to love and to honor them well. May my life be a pleasing, a pleasant aroma, an offering unto you, Jesus. May I be pleasing you in everything that I say and do. As Colossians 3 says, that let everything that we say or do, do it as unto the Lord. May our lives be pleasing to the Lord. And that comes through allowing him to equip us for every good work so that we might be pleasing. That he might look at you and say, this is a son, this is a daughter, who does my will, who's obedient. Even when no one else is looking, when it's difficult, when no one's patting me on the back, when I don't get credit, 
They live a life that seeks to please me. That the Lord really is in the highest place. We talk about that a lot. He is the highest place. Like that should be the place where our eyes are always looking, looking. You ever noticed in, if you've raised kids that there's things that they're doing sometimes and they're not sure if it's good or not. And so they kind of look at you. It's like, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And we should look at the Lord like that. If we're not sure, Lord, should I, should I be watching this? Is this really the best thing for me? Should I really say this? I want to be pleasing to you, Lord. I want to be pleasing to you in all ways. I want my heart to be pure. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.